Um, and we know, I say this a lot, but we know that there's, there's a lot of uh, seekers and uh, people with uh, differing backgrounds that, that drop in here, and we just pray that this would be a space for you where you can hear, we believe is the truth of written revelation, which God has given us in his word so that we would know Jesus, who we do believe was God, who did li- live the perfectly obedient life that we could not live and did die the death for us in our place, enduring uh, the wrath of God towards us in our sin and the payment for sin, which was death and rose again. We had a glorious celebration just declaring that last weekend as we continue to remember that every Sunday really for us is Resurrection Sunday. So um, Easter Sunday is every Sunday as we remember that he did rise from death, that he did not stay in the grave, and that he, the grave was given up its prey to that, and that now we can walk in fullness of life if we lean into Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. So um, glad you're with us. want you to know also we normally just, what we do is we take books of the Bible and just kind of teach through them, and we want you to see the whole counsel of God. We want you to see what the, the whole Bible says about itself. A.W. Tozer said you can't really have a full Christian without a full Bible. So uh, we want us to grow up in the fullness that is the Word of God. But um, we're taking a break. We just spent two years in Luke, so uh, some of you guys are with us at the hotel, uh, and then we shifted into here a couple, about nine, ten months ago, and we finally finished Luke on Easter Sunday. Glorious way to finish it, Luke 24 in God's providence, and now um, we're going to teach on baptism this morning, one, because I've never really had an opportunity to teach on baptism, and next Sunday we're going to be baptizing a slew of you uh, in a great celebration. So we're having our baptism celebration next Sunday. So I know a lot of friends and family are going to be invited. We're thrilled to do that in advance. Um, and once you know we're closing down Bergen Kids because we want families all to enjoy and see the visible declarations of that Jesus is their allegiance and that Jesus is their life death and resurrection. And so it's going to be an awesome Sunday. So um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to teach through um, baptism this morning. So um, if you have a Bible, I guess get it ready. We're going to be in a bunch of different texts this morning. Romans 6 is going to be one we kind of land in for a while, but you'll see the rest of the verses on the screen. And here's what um, I want us to understand. Um, Next weekend, we're going to all celebrate and see and witness Men and women who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and reconciliation with God. And what that's going to actually be for us is a picture of what happened Good Friday to Easter. And so it's great that coming out of Easter Sunday, we get to actually remember and see visibly in baptism because it's fundamentally about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so you're going to see a lot of people talk about that. Um, and we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate. Give thanks to God for saving sinners. But in preparation for next weekend, I want to inform our hearts and minds a little bit. So as we enjoy what we see and join in together next Sunday, would actually be more fully informed and more full in worship to the Lord. So um, it's how we publicly identify with Jesus and profess our allegiance to Jesus. So uh, leaving Luke, setting us up for today, uh, we need to get one thing straight, because Luke repeatedly laid before us that um, he gave us life and teachings of Jesus, right? We, we examined his life and teachings for two years. We saw him heal disease and raise the dead to life and cure sickness and give sight to the blind and uh, hearing to the deaf. We saw him speak and lovingly show compassion to sinners. We saw him rebuke the self-righteous. We saw him do a, a slew of things which ultimately lead up to Calvary, where he would give his life for ransom of sin, and he would actually say, hey, here's the picture of all I've been teaching and preaching all along, the kingdom of God's going to come and fall because I have going to finish and put away with darkness. I'm going to bring it upon myself to bring upon the daylight. We saw that people in the Old Testament were longing for the light and life of Jesus Christ, right? The oppression of themselves as a people, the impression of sin. Jesus comes and does it, and here at we're going to roll into is it's not just now life and teachings that we examine, that we hear about. 
the, the, the Bible will say that you actually become one with Christ. It's this thing theologians call union with Christ, that we are literally his. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. So it's this amazing thing that our life died with him and our new life is raised with him. And so you're going to see in baptism also that picture of that in some of these texts we're going to look at that. And so uh, here's what I want to do this morning, just three things. Um, keep it real simple, okay, because I know this is going to be a little bit different than uh, usually I just rant through verses and give us simple implications, right? So I'm going to actually do a little bit more like a classroom, but it's still going to be exciting for us. Um, three things. Why baptize? Why baptism? What it is and what it's not. Cool? And then why we love it. Does that sound easy? You guys note takers? Okay, so uh, why baptism, what it is, what it isn't, and then why we're going to celebrate and rejoice. Okay, so uh, number one, fundamentally, why baptism? There's really um, three reasons, if you look through the whole New Testament, that, that we want to baptize, that we want to do this as a celebration of those who have repented of sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, there are three main ones. Jesus did it as our example Right? Jesus commanded it, and the New Testament believers did it. Okay? So uh, we want to always go to the Scripture, let Scripture interpret Scripture, and tell us and inform us as to how we gather together, what we do when we gather, and what we celebrate together. And so we have Jesus himself doing it as our example. We have Jesus commanding it in his Matthew 28 edict, and we have the New Testament believers participating in it. Uh, starting with Jesus himself as our example. If you just read the gospel accounts, okay, through, we just finished looking at Luke. We saw back in Luke chapter 3 where John the Baptist, John the baptizer, right, he comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. The reason he does this is because he realizes the repentance has to happen for you to receive forgiveness of sins in the cross of Christ. And so he's going to show that baptism shows that Jesus comes along, right? You can read the gospel accounts, all three of them with differing views and helpful uh, insights into that. Jesus comes along and John's like, I ain't baptizing you. You're not sinless. You don't need to confess sin. Why are you getting baptized? And Jesus says, no, I'm not doing it as the sinless, as, as the sinful one. I'm doing it as the sinless one. I'm doing it to fulfill all righteousness. Right? What that means is he is doing it as a foreshadowing of his own death, burial, and resurrection. That what he will do in baptism will it take sinners with him in his death. He will bury their sin and kill it, canceling the debt in full, and he will raise them back to newness of life. So Jesus does not get baptized because he was sinful like everyone else. We, we, we hear that talked about a lot. Jesus was fully without sin and lived a fully obedient life that we could not live on our behalf, right? This is why you have to understand, if you don't get anything else, baptism is ultimately about Jesus, right? I say a lot that the answer to our questions is Jesus, right? So uh, all the questions we wade through, we see every text of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, Jesus is the center point. Jesus is where all the threads come together. Jesus is the one that makes the Bible beautiful. Jesus is the one that makes the Bible make sense. You can't have anything without Jesus and have it make sense, okay, as you read the Scriptures. And so baptism itself is all about Jesus. So people are to be baptized so that God will not love them or save them. It's about obedience, it's about he did it as our example. He paved the way. Jesus modeled it. Second, he commanded it. Look at Matthew 28. This was Jesus teaching his disciples. He was before he ascended. He had already defeated and conquered sin in the grave, rose again. He kind of gives these last words. And as he gives these last words, he says, hey, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Okay? That's a huge claim. right? So really, I say this a lot. It doesn't matter what he says next, right? He can say, go play cricket the rest of your life. We're all playing cricket. Like, it, it doesn't matter. He has full authority over heaven and earth. Whatever he says, we're going to do. 
And what does he say? Matthew 28, he says this. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why we baptize in the name of the triune God, because Jesus told us to. It's not rocket science, right? We look at the Bible, he says, hey, make disciples of all nations, make learners of me, teach them all I've commanded you, hey, and baptize them. So we say, okay, Jesus, we're gonna baptize those who have placed their faith in your person and work. And this means not just getting baptized, but then growing as a Christian, right? He says, people are to be baptized and made disciples. So we don't just baptize people. The people that you see next week get baptized, it's not great. They're good, they're in the tank, they got wet, took a long bath, now they can do whatever they want. No, we baptize you in your identification with Jesus, in your allegiance to Jesus, and then it's, hey, we're walking with you now. We're gonna continue to grow in grace together. We're gonna teach all that Jesus taught us together. That's part of the baptism process. You know, it's crazy to me how people go, I became a Christian. If I had repented of my sin, I see that Jesus paid my debt in full. I see that he is my life. I see that I get his righteousness and he becomes my sin for me. I realize that he paid the debt in full. I realize I get adopted into his family as a son and daughter with a perfect heavenly father. I realize they get all the blessings in Christ. I realize I'm a co-heir with all that he inherits. I realize all of these things, man, I will follow him. I will obey him. And I'm like, all right, first thing he says is to get baptized. Eh, not feeling it yet. You're not feeling it yet, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, this is the most common things I hear to why you don't want to get baptized. Or you have this vision of, man, it's got to be on my birthday with all my third cousins and great-grandparents, and we got to bring everybody in. There's got to be pixie dust falling stuff in the Jordan River. Can you fly me to Israel? Can we do it there? And then, then it's going to be perfect. Then we can have the best baptism ever. Everyone I want there, everything's perfect, and that's just not how it is in the Scriptures. Um, I'd say probably want to repent of not feeling it and get baptized as a good witness. Jesus would say, get baptized. Jesus would say, if you have become a Christian, then you should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one of the first things he commands us to do as blood-bought citizens of the kingdom. And so we play this funny game, right, where we're like, well, I'm just not feeling it. I'm sure I'm ready yet. No, you're ready. If you're a Christian, you're ready. Because the Holy Spirit of God resides in you and asks this of us. So let me just encourage you. um, If you're a Christian and and you are turning from sin and you've repented in faith and trusted in his work alone for your sin and you refuse to get baptized, my simple question is, uh, what's keeping your disobedience? What is it? And maybe search your heart a little bit in there. And let's see what God might reveal in that. Because your obedience, listen, it brings great glory to God. It's a great witness to others. It brings you great joy. All right, so moving on. Jesus modeled it. Jesus commanded it. And the New Testament practiced it. There are so many texts. Just going to give us a couple to look at. Acts 8.12 on the screen. But when they believe, this is the new church, right, has given the Holy Spirit of God. Pentecost happens. Peter preaches a killer sermon. First megachurch is formed. 3,000 people. And they all go out. And as the disciples go out, the apostles go out, they start preaching and teaching the good news that Jesus did rise, that he did ascend, that he does 
gift, reconciliation with God, righteousness from God that is not your own, then here you, as you have all of this right, you have the church going out and they're hearing this message. Acts 8 says, they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ and they were baptized with men and women. This was common in the New Testament. Common New Testament church. People heard the gospel, people believed the gospel and they were dunked. All right, Acts 18 verse 8, Crispus ruled the synagogue. This guy had power, he had authority. The gospel strips him of his identity identity with authority with power prestige he gets saved he trusts in Jesus he believes the Lord together with his entire household he goes back preaches the gospel to his family whole family repents of sin trusts in Jesus Christ and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized so everyone's getting baptized like this is just a, a normal way of life in the church I hear the good news of Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to trust him. I see that he is the only one worthy of worship. I see my idolatry and my treason against the king of the universe. I see that I cannot be my own God. I see that he frees me from the worship of myself. I want to get baptized to see this and lean into this. Acts 9, one of my favorites. You've got Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament letters. This guy who once was Saul persecuting the church, killing the church. He's on the road to Damascus. Dealing out threats, Jesus meets him on the road, says, hey, I'm going to save you, <laughs> right? And what happens is verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. What did he do? He got up and then thought for a while, prayed about getting all his ancestors to get baptized. No, right? He got baptized, right? He got up and said, man, how, where's the nearest lake? I mean, where can we go? How can I be baptized? Because he realizes that he fundamentally identifies with the burial, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who saved him on the road to Damascus. Acts 8.34, this is a great one. You've got this eunuch, right? He's on the road, and he starts asking Philip questions. God takes Philip to this man. He opens up the scriptures to him. Look at this, Acts 8.34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? He's reading Isaiah to him. About himself or about someone else? He's going, hey, does Isaiah talk about himself or all these things, of a prophecy about somebody else? We know that's Jesus, right? Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told them the good news about Jesus. I love this. Philip opened his mouth. Right? What does that tell us about our evangelism, right? We need to open our mouth, right? Listen, no one's ever gotten saved watching you abstain from drinking a beer, Right, like I've never seen it happen. Man, he's not drinking. I gotta repent of my sin. Like that's not gonna happen. At some point, we have to articulate who Jesus is, what he's done, how he saved us, ransomed us, bought us, so that people can know that. Right, the gospel is an articulated gospel. It's not one that we just somehow live out with our actions. Yes, we're to embody it. Yes, we're to be all about the orphan and the widow and social injustice and and people with difficulties and and have compassion and deeply empathize and walk with them and show our love for God by our good works so they might glorify God in heaven. But ultimately, right, we desperately need to open our mouths. And so here Philip opens his mouth and he says, hey, let me tell you about Isaiah. Let me tell you who Isaiah points to. And he explains the good news of Jesus Christ. It says he opened the scriptures, told him the good news of Jesus, and look at this. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch goes, hey, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
And he commands the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. I love it. The eunuch hears the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not planning on it. He was just asking some cool questions, asking some genuine questions. Philip says, hey, here's who Isaiah was pointing to, the Jesus who would be a suffering servant. Die for sin in your place, in your stead. Rise again. And then he goes, man, that's awesome. I want Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I'm a sinner. Turns to Jesus. And then he's looking, going, hey, there's water. I don't know what it was. Your neighbor's pool. It was something. And he says, hey, get me in there. I need to be baptized. Something in him just naturally said, hey, yeah, this is the next step for me. I believe in Jesus, and therefore I will be baptized. So that's why we baptize. Jesus was our example. Jesus commanded himself. And the New Testament believers all practiced it. Now, um, what baptism is, number two. Uh, Maybe some of you are new to this, but the scriptures will teach this beautiful, profound truth that we were once spiritually dead in our sin, and what happens is Jesus Christ makes us spiritually alive. So you are born by natural birth, but you need spiritual rebirth, right, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, Paul shows how that happens and how it relates to baptism. Romans 6, verse 3, here's what Paul writes. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I love it. It's just totally assumed for Paul. Don't don't you know that all of us were baptized into this? Don't you know that this is what it symbolizes, this is what it looks like, this is what it points to? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been buried with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." So Paul says three main things here. Okay, let's just go right through them. Number one, he says, in this text, he says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. This is the beautiful news of when we became Christians that in Jesus' death our sins died too. They were put in the grave. They were done away with. No sin can come back and haunt you in the sense of taking you away from the eternal gates of glory when Jesus Christ kills them. Right, so, so our sins are dead in the grave, just as Jesus was fully dead in his true death. So baptism is all about Jesus showing how our faith in his gospel is through this baptism. This is why baptism makes no sense apart from Jesus. Right, this is what it's showing. When you see people go down into the water, it's reminding you of their sin has been put to death by Jesus Christ himself in the death that he endured for them. On their behalf. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing a visible portrayal of that. And as Jesus is raised, as they come up out of the water, they're being raised to newness of life, not in baptism. They're showing you, it's pointing to the newness of life that they've had in Jesus Christ. That's the picture, that's the beautiful picture that we are seeing, that we are enjoying as we see baptism. So Jesus died and was buried, and his burial were our sins, and those were buried too. And that's why he says next, in order that, 
just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's, baptism's not just a portrayal of the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus, it's also a testament to the resurrection of Jesus. That we too get a resurrection now in a new life like Jesus, and we also get a future resurrection when Jesus returns and welcomes all the saints into glory. We're seeing all of this bound up in baptism. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful portrayal. Just as Jesus was raised, the individual is raised. I love this. So you're going to see people say, when you witness baptism, Jesus died for me. Jesus was buried for me. Jesus was raised for me. That's what you see. That's what you enjoy in that. And that's why he continues to show how all of this ends up in the life of discipleship. That baptism is not just a visible representation of the death, burial, resurrection of that person, what they've received in the personal work of Jesus, but ultimately it's also their pledge to, I want to continue to pursue and follow Jesus. Look what he says. He says, our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. So here's, here's the great news, and we say this all the time. Because Jesus died for our sin, we can put our sin to death. It's not good news that you're more moral or you have a better shot that you can put your sin to death. It's not because you were raised in a particular home. It's not because you are raised in a particular church. It's not because of any of those things. The reason you can fundamentally put your sin to death is because Jesus has put your sin to death. Right, so now the Holy Spirit of God that resides in you, no sin has captivity over you. No demonic powers can withhold you. They can pester you, but they no longer have your allegiance. You're freed from the powers of this world. You're freed from the power of sin that once enslaved you. And here we see that we can absolutely walk in newness of life and freedom in life. Now listen, um, when we talk about sin, putting sin to death, if you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, um, when we talk about sin, um, we're not simply talking about bad habits. Like we're not simply talking about just failures you've had or regrets you have. Um, we're talking about the indwelling sin by nature and choice by birth. Right, so all of us, right, myself included, we are born in this world with the disposition to choose outside of God's ideal. We do not want that. We do not find glad submission to that. Yet Jesus Christ in his cross says, I'm after your joy. I'm after fullness of life for you. I'm going to do what you would never do or never want to do so I can graft you into a life that is free from sin and ultimately pain, suffering, and justice where my glory is on display and the wrath that was due you is removed and appeased. Good news. And here's the thing. By sinners of nature and choice, we do not want to take our sin and give it to the sinless one, Jesus. We want to tolerate it. We want to manage it. We want to blame others for it. It's my parents' fault, kids' fault, circumstances' fault, jobs' fault, genetics' fault. We want to blame everything else rather than taking responsibility for it and saying, I can give it to Jesus and find righteousness that I cannot earn on my own and walk in newness of life. And so in baptism, we're being reminded of that. That's beautiful. It's profound. It's powerful. It's glorious. That's what you're witnessing in baptism. And this is the good news. That people are saying, I'm giving my sin to Jesus. I'm not tolerating it. I'm not managing it. I'm not blaming others for it. I'm owning it. And I'm being forgiven by a good, gracious king who 
gives me mercy, gives me grace when I did not deserve it and did not earn it. That's what we see in baptism. Here's the other piece in here in Romans 6 you see. Woven into all this is union with Christ. Right, that in Jesus' death we died too. In his resurrection we've risen too. That Paul will say we are one with Jesus Christ. This is the swallowing up of our identity into Jesus Christ. When you see baptism, when you see someone get baptized, you're seeing and being reminded of Jesus exerting ownership over all of you. It's not just parts of you. He says, I own you now. You were bought with my blood and my demands go. My commands free you. Now we love to follow those because we know they lead to life and not to you know, burden, not, not, uh, not decay. We, we don't buy the lie anymore. We follow those things believing them, right? We're not like Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. And so as you witness that, it speaks to your identity as totally shifted. So someone who was once claimed by, owned by, declared by, named by their job, male, female, their vocation, whether they were a mom or a dad, whether they were a child, whether they were a student, that identity fundamentally takes second place and they are in Christ. The Christian is first and foremost always in Christ. This is our union because in his death our sins died too. In his burial our old self was buried and in his resurrection our new selves were raised to life. It's amazing. Amazing. We're not perfect but we're made new on a trajectory of repenting of sin. Now listen, um, the reason baptism is, the reason why it's so good to see a public picture of our identity being swallowed up in Jesus Christ is because, listen, no matter who you are, whether you're a seeker, whether you're an agnostic, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Christian, listen, all of us have been hardwired by our creator God for safety and joy and identity in him. We've all been hardwired that way. So we're all looking for it in some way, right? All of us want it to some degree. So because that's been a hard wiring in us from birth, right, through creation, you, as you see this, we've been hardwired to construct for us an identity for ourselves. So listen, if you don't have Jesus Christ, you're going to constantly be looking for something to be your identity. You're going to claim that thing as the sole thing that makes you a value, of makes you worthwhile, of gives you esteem, gives you prestige, and until you free yourself from the ache that that is in Jesus Christ alone, you run the rat race, which is a merry-go-round of the cul-de-sac of constantly trying to find something, and you become a living definition of insanity, which is trying to do the same thing, thinking it'll work when it won't work. Well, I don't know. Maybe this will continue. Maybe finding my life here will continue to work, and Jesus continually shows us you have to be freed from literally your identity and ties to everything that will exhaust you. And when you lean into Jesus Christ and are made new in his person and work, then all the sin that repeatedly leads you to a false God frees you from false gods that cannot hold up under the pressure you put on them and lead you to the true God who has shown that he was true in his resurrection. This is why I always say, your spouse makes a terrible God. Like the way you operate in your marriage, you operate in such a way that, man, it's, you put pressure on things, on people, on your boss, on your kids, on your spouse, on circumstances in such a way that they can never and will never hold up because they were never designed to be your identity. Jesus Christ is. Same today, yesterday, and forever. Perfect Father. Everlasting hope. 
does not love us on condition. When we rebel, he still calls us back. He still woos us in. You will never find identity outside of Jesus Christ that is everlasting and non-exhausting. You won't find it. When I counsel with so many people, and I always ask them, how is that going for you? They're not good. Okay, you can be free from that. You don't have to live in that. So we all seek an identity, and I want you to know that it is hardwired by God, our creator, in a loving attempt to show us that only identity that will make us safe and cannot be taken from you is in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more terrifying than you not knowing who you are, right? You see it as people get older, kids get out of college, they get married, they're off, spouses are in the home going, who am I? Because my identity rested solely in raising kids, loving children, how they behaved. We see spouses with each other in marriage, right? It becomes so much about how you can control them and play the Holy Spirit's role Eventually you get 10 years down the road, you're sitting on the dock going, who are we? I don't even know you. Yeah, because you're putting pressures and expectations on your spouse that God never intended them to be. They were given to you not so that you would love marriage, so that you would love them and love Jesus. And so identity in Jesus reorients everything that we understand, the way we view life, the way we view business, the way we view work, the way we view appearance, the way we view routine, the way we view power, the way we view authority, the way we view positions, it changes everything. So listen, there's nothing more freeing than being found in Jesus Christ. And now the pressure's off everybody else. Now you're free to live. Now you're free to enjoy the good gifts God gives you. Because sin right at its bottom is you taking good gifts from God and not using them to glorify his name, not using them to walk rightly with him, but using them to betray him. And the more you do that, you get more frustrated, and the irony is you blame God. You shake your fist at his heavens. And he's going, I gave you the golf clubs not to beat your dog, but to play golf. And you're somehow mad at him for that. So listen, in baptism, we are seeing people's identity swallowed up in Jesus's, Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We're being reminded that there is no glad identity outside of the freeing work of Jesus. That's great news. So let me just encourage you. Can I encourage you for a second? Yes, good. Um, Being a pastor is a really funny thing. (laughs) Um, Because you're the topic of everyone's dinner table every Sunday, right? So so I go home, and Chris and I have this little joke where it's like, yep, I wonder, yeah, I I wish I could just be a gnat on the wall. Sometimes I don't wish that, but you know what I mean. Like, like just all the conversations. I know everyone is likely talking about me. Man, was this exegesis right? Was, man, did you see what he's wearing? Did you see he had shoes on Easter Sunday that were converse with his suit? You can't do that. Like, like I know all the conversations that are happening. Why, why is his hair not cut this way? Why is his son so loud running around the altar? I mean, it just never ends, right? So, so, so listen, listen. If I could encourage you from my perspective, um, what is the only thing that I can preach to myself to free me of me? I mean, what's the only thing that get, can get me outside of the rat race that will be public and approval of man? Is me constantly, every single day, not giving anyone or anything outside of Jesus authority over my identity. You hear me? Like, you have to claim that, pray that, believe that, speak the scriptures, that, that speak that over your life. 
You have to absolutely believe an identity outside of Jesus has no authority over me. It doesn't have any hold on me. It doesn't have any claim on me. This is beautiful. I mean, this is, this is true. And so a regular question for me becomes, where do I need to press more fully into the love, forgiveness, adoption, salvation, grace that he imparted to me in his death through his resurrection to free myself of me? So my question to you is, if you're struggling with that, where do you need to lean more fully into the love, grace, forgiveness, adoption that he has secured for you in Christ so you're free from the other things that are pressuring and weighing on you and creeping in to the rat, the rat race of your soul? So I share with you to say, hey, you're in good company. And when I see baptisms, let me tell you, I'm reminded of that. Every time I see baptisms and I remember Romans 6, I'm reminded, oh my goodness, my identity has been swallowed up in Jesus and every other identity no longer has a hold on me because I'm found in him and he is mine and I am his. It's beautiful. All right, number three. Well, baptism is not. So baptism is identifying in the allegiance of Jesus. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's a depiction of our deadness to sin, walking in newness of life. What is baptism not? Um, this is super important because we don't want anybody showing up going, oh, this is what baptism is, and you being wrong. Okay, so here's what baptism is not first and foremost. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, and it is not purification for sins. I know we got tons of backgrounds. I always say we're a circus in here. We planted this church almost four years ago. We were in that, that house and moved to the hotel. I remember just talking to so many of you going, man, we are a circus of backgrounds. And so let's shepherd ourselves well into rally around the good news of Jesus Christ and the doctrines that prevail, and then let's work on other issues well. And so I know many of you grew up believing and hearing, being taught that baptism saved you and that baptism was a purification for sin. And the scriptures will tell us it is not. Only one makes purification for sin. That is Jesus. Only one makes salvation for sin. That is Jesus. Only one pays the debt for sin. That is Jesus. Only one gifts righteousness for sin. That is Jesus. Only one makes a way of salvation. That is Jesus. Pastors do not save. Churches do not save. Baptism does not save. Communion does not save. The church you gather in does not save. Your family does not save. Jesus Christ and his personal work alone on the cross, on your behalf, for your sin, in your place, as your stead, does not save. So that is why we always celebrate, rejoice, and love Jesus Christ. We have no other person to worship. We have no other person to revel in. We have no other person to talk about. We have no other person's work to examine or wonder about. Jesus has finished it all. So we love that Jesus is the one that we worship. So baptism is not showing you that they are getting saved. It's not showing you that they are somehow getting more dirt off their sin. Jesus has done that and you're being reminded that Jesus did that as you witness their baptism. That's great news for us, right? I always say the good news is not that you can be more moral or nicer. The good news is that you get to be made new with a new heart and a new mind that worships a new God. Friends, there is no assurance beyond Jesus I know people, they could just get dunked for assurance. Well, that, that's terrible assurance. There's no greater assurance than giving your sin to Jesus who had no sin and became sin for you so you might become in him the righteousness of God. 
That's where we find our assurance. We find our assurance gazing at the cross of Christ where he says, hey, the debt was canceled. You needed a champion. You couldn't be it. We're not celebrating you. We're celebrating me now and into all of eternity. So let's start with it now and here. And so we worship his name. We worship Jesus as we see these baptisms. Romans 10 says this. Here's just a couple verses. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now listen, just to spare us from fire insurance or believing we just need to say we believe Jesus was raised from the dead, in this context, to actually say that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was king, was to make a height above Caesar and you'd have your head cut off. That's very different. Right, us saying, yeah, I believe he just rose from the dead, and me saying, no, I believe in the sense that all my weight and trust is banking on that, and no matter what you do to me, I will not recant that. It's very different. But that alone saves, that alone makes new. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I just spoke that to you. He made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin. He was perfectly obedient to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is our righteousness. Baptism is not your righteousness. Baptism is not your purification. Romans 4, 5. I always say, man, this is the John 3, 16 of the Bible. This one should be in the end zone. Right? It just sums up the whole gospel. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. That's Jesus who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Amazing. So if you trust in Jesus, he declares you. Big theologians use that word. He declares you righteous. In other words, when you stand before God, he doesn't see the wickedness in Mike Reed's heart. He doesn't see the belittlement of his name. He doesn't see all the things that he has racked up on account of wrath. He sees holy, spotless, blameless before him on account of his son, Jesus, who stood in Mike Reed's place in his stead and says, you're clean, you're forgiven, you're righteous in the declared sense that we get to stand with Jesus in his place. Amazing. Amazing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, common verse. If you've grown up in church, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. (laughs) It's all about Jesus. Grace is from Jesus. Faith is from Jesus. Salvation is from Jesus. I love it. He says, you got nothing to boast in, man. I'm going to take every last part of salvation and make me be the one who does it, orchestrates it, own it. So when you stand before God, you say, man, I can't believe you showed me unmerited favor and grace. I can't believe I have literally nothing to boast in. I can't believe even the faith I have to believe in you, you gave to me. I can't believe you opened my eyes. I can't believe you gave me illumination. I can't believe you allowed me to see how good you are and how sweet you are and how saving you are, how joy-filling you are. I can't believe you showed me that identity in you, frees me from all the other false gods of identity, man. I could not do that in of myself because by nature and choice, you do not want that. You do not desire that. And Jesus says, here it is. Here I am. Here's my glory. You say, I have to have that. That's what happened when you got saved. All of us would say that. Isn't that beautiful? He reminds us of this. That's why Paul's going to call out the church in Galatia. and be like, hey, why are you guys adding to your salvation? It's not salvation plus circumcision. So listen, nothing plus Jesus saves you. It's not Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus communion, Jesus plus doing good works, Jesus plus you know, being humanitarian, Jesus plus loving your neighbor, Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything for you. 
in our salvation. You need Jesus and only Jesus. You don't need Jesus and anything else. We saw on Good Friday, right, on the cross of Jesus Christ, you got two sinners hanging next to Jesus, both right, rightfully condemned in their sin. One trusts in Jesus Christ. One believes who he is. One doesn't. One is raised to everlasting life and one is not. No time for the dunk tank. Didn't have time to get baptized. But he is fully forgiven of his sin and rescued from sin hanging next to Jesus. Now, to help us understand what it's not, this is why we, we perform baptisms the way we do. Um, we perform baptisms by immersion, and there's basically three reasons, and we've seen it kind of trickle through here. One, Jesus himself was immersed. He came up out of the water. Now, New Testament baptisms, if you read pretty much all of them, they were done by immersion. Further, the word baptism means to immerse or to sink or to put under. That's why uh, way back when, when ships would sink, they'd say it was baptized. Um, you see in some of these passages with the eunuch and others, they come up out of the water. That's a clear mode of baptism. That's what we do here. That's how we practice baptism here. And let me just say this. There are faithful teachers of Scripture who disagree with us on mode of baptism, but they all believe this is what the word means. No one disagrees with that. Baptism did not change its meaning. It always means to immerse or put under or to dunk. We saw Jesus come up out of the water. We saw the unit go up under the water. John the baptizer repeatedly baptized the converts with full immersion. This is even the practice of Jews and Gentiles when they converted to Judaism. They would baptize them underwater and bring them out. So we see it obvious for us to practice baptisms by immersion. Now, traditionally, and I, I'm not going to get too into this. I just want to briefly mention this because I know this matters. There are two, basically, beliefs and traditions of baptism, okay? So there's pedo-baptism or pedo-baptism, however you want to uh, say that or explain that. And then there's credo-baptism. So um, you have pedo-baptism, which just comes from the Latin word pedo, which means infant. You have credo-baptism, which comes from the word credo, which means I believe. So one is infant baptism, right? And one is I believe believer's baptism, and I want to briefly just uh, talk through a few of these so you understand why we do what we do. Um, if you came from a Catholic, Presbyterian, maybe Anglican, Methodist background, um, probably Lutheran as well, um, this was familiar to you. Um, and listen, there are godly, Holy Spirit-filled, Jesus-loving Christians who practice this, who we fellowship with, who we will one day be raised in the same resurrection under glory like this. They're wrong, but will we love them, right? So, so there, there's nothing wrong. We, we will absolutely fellowship with them. We will absolutely spend time with them. We do not get quarrelsome. We do not get arrogant. We do not believe we're holy. We believe they're wrong, yet... We will practice baptism in the credo sense. So, so listen, here's a few reasons why. I just want you, to, want you to understand this, right? We love you that you're here. But we just want to be clear so you're not confused on why we do anything that we do. Um, you don't see one infant baptized in the Bible. Um, we always want to just look at the scriptures and make sure that's solely interpreting this thing for us. So you can insinuate, you can guess, you can assume, but it's never clear. Where you see households, we believe those households all repented and believed and were baptized. Um, it does not say they were all infants in the house. Most will say, who hold to this, will say, well, there must have been infants. Well, it doesn't say that. And in fact, the majority, and in fact, all will say that someone repented, believed, and then was baptized. That's consistent. That's a consistent practice in the New Testament. Um, credo baptism, I'm going to continue with that in a minute. 
to help you blend these two. Credo baptism, that's our belief and practice. Um, that's I believe. We believe that there's, a, there's something that follows in the New Testament. There is repentance, faith, and then baptism. That you believe in Jesus Christ and that you are baptized. We saw that in all those texts I mentioned and many more. So we practice believers' baptism by immersion. It's for those who possess faith in Jesus Christ. So we're pedo-baptism, baptize infants. Credo-baptists, us, would baptize believers, which occurs post-conversion, not sprinkled, but immersed. Okay, so that's what we would do. Now, in short, going back to pedo-baptism, um, here's what I want to show you how we really come out of this fully. Um, most will say, I don't, I don't want to peg anybody, but just in general, they would say you basically see through the whole Old Testament into the New a straight line of full continuity, right? So you have circumcision given in the Old Testament as the sign and seal that you were God's. It was like a jersey you'd put on to say, I am his. It was never to save you. It was never to impart righteousness to you. It was to point to that you were God's. It was to point to that he owned you. And then they would say it's replaced by baptism, in the New Testament. So you have Old Covenant, New Covenant. You have Old, Co- Old Testament practice and New Testament practice. Circumcision being the sign that points to that you are God's. Baptism being the sign that you, that you are his point to and points to God's. Now, um, obviously you were circumcised at birth. Now listen, I'm sure no one wants to get circumcised, right, when we say, hey, you gotta get baptized, right, if you're 20, 25. No one's, so we're not even gonna argue that one, right? But, but outside of that, right, I started doing that. Here are just a few things that, that we would see is they would say basically that what happens is then is you're born into a covenantal family, right? So if your parents love Jesus, love God, then you're born into that family, you need to be baptized because that's what happened in the circumcision of the Old Testament Jews. Now, some of you were born into a covenantal family, families where your parents loved Jesus, loved the Lord, followed the Lord. Jackson is born into a covenantal family in the sense that Kristen and I love the Lord, follow the Lord, pursue the Lord, But here's the really big deal. The really big deal is there's a big difference in your natural birth and your spiritual rebirth. Huge difference. And you will see this consistently in the scriptures. The New Testament will repeatedly lay this reality before us. You have an earthly father from your physical birth, but you have a heavenly father, a perfect father in your spiritual rebirth. And your spiritual rebirth happens at a point in time when you repent of sin and place your faith in Jesus, when you're sealed with his spirit. You see this throughout the New Testament scriptures. So the Old Testament focuses on your physical birth. The New Testament focuses on your spiritual rebirth. Now, look, a great text to go is Romans 4. And Paul's going to refer to the first guy in the history of mankind to be circumcised. Also the one who believed in God and his faith was credited as righteousness, right? And you all probably grown up in church and you know that's Abraham. Look at what Paul says about Abraham and says about circumcision and then how we will understand baptism. He says this in verse 11. He, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised? No, still uncircumcised. So, so Abraham, just so we're following this right, he has the righteousness of God before he had the physical circumcision. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. 
Okay, so Abraham has faith. It's credited to him as righteousness, right? He believes in the future work of God in Jesus Christ. We see this back in Genesis, right? When he's the father of many nations, when he says through your line will come descendants, will come a nation, and through that nation will come, man, this great nation that gives a seed and birth to the deliverer who is Jesus Christ, who will redeem forgiveness of sin, push back all darkness and injustice. And so as you're seeing all of this, this is so, so great. He's showing you here that Abraham had faith which credited his righteousness before his circumcision and Paul says Abraham's a pattern now for all who believe there's faith first there's belief first and Paul says himself it's a sign it pointed back to his faith in God when he was credited the righteousness of God in Christ and in his promise so with infants we don't believe they can point back to faith in God yet They're incapable of doing that. The sign came after faith, not before. Abraham was saved before his circumcision. This is why you'll see in every case in the New Testament, faith in Jesus precedes baptism. I once heard one pastor talk about it's like a wedding ring, right? Um, You have a wedding ring to point to your spouse and point to your marriage. But if you don't have a marriage, you can't wear a wedding ring. It doesn't point to anything. So we have baptism and circumcision that point to our faith in Jesus Christ, our identification in his death, burial, and resurrection, which we just walked through. This is why we believe the order is repentance, faith, baptism. I know who Jesus is. I believe in what Jesus has done. I'm turning my sin to Jesus. I'm turning from my sin to Jesus, and now I'm getting baptized to identify with that he has saved me, that he's made me new, that my sins were killed, my debt was canceled, and his resurrection is mine. This is why after the edict of Matthew 28, you see his own disciples go and teach the same thing. Acts 2.38, right? Peter gets up and what does he say? Repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. That's the role. you got to repent first to find forgiveness of sins. And your baptism is going to show and declare and portray that you did that. So we see this has always been the walk. This is why, just so you know, um, in membership-wise, this has been our position since day one because we we love those who do not land here. Yet if you're going to be baptized, I believe you have to be baptized in this way. That if you were baptized in an evangelical, Protestant, Orthodox, gospel-teaching church in the name of the triune God and you evidence conversion over your life, we will consider that and count that. That's fine. But if you have no baptism... We want you to move towards baptism because it's the first step of obedience for you if you've turned from sin and turned to Jesus. It's great. We've had some sit here for a while and they were paedo-baptists and now they're going to get baptized. You're going to see them get baptized because they believe that it's for believers. It's for faith in Christ. That's great. We celebrate that. And we give people space to walk and learn in that if they don't land here. But this is why we do what we do here. I want to end, land the plane here by looking at Paul tie all this together in the book of Colossians. It's beautiful. Then we're going to sing. Colossians 2 verse 11. Here's what Paul writes. He takes circumcision. He takes baptism. He takes the gospel. It says this. In him also, that's Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, so historically, 
God has marked his people. We've talked about this a ton, right? God has marked his people with circumcision, with an external marking of belonging to God, right? In the end, though, here's what God is saying. I've not just circumcised you physically. I've circumcised your heart. I own you internally. That's what he's saying here. It's no longer an external, visible declaration. It's an internal transformation. It's not an external marking. It's an internal reality. He's circumcised your heart. He's made you new in his person and work, right? That is what Jesus has done. So rolling back now to our point earlier, baptism declares your union with Jesus Christ. You cannot have union with Jesus Christ unless you've repented of sin and turned to him for salvation. So you cannot have newness of life. You're still dead in your sin until you do that, until the Holy Spirit inaugurates that. And so God says to me, Mike Reed, I've called you, adopted you as one of my sons, not because you're righteous, but because of the blood shed on behalf of you, which was Jesus' blood, and I've circumcised your heart. You now have an internal transformation that has occurred. And I'm going to continue to say this until God takes me home or my time here as your pastor is up. In the end, all you have with me is Mike Reed dies with Jesus Christ. So my fundamental identity is not I'm a pastor, it's not I'm a dad, it's not I'm a father, it's not I'm male, it's not that I'm Jackson's dad, it's not that I am a student at Southern, it is I am in Jesus Christ. My whole identity is swallowed up there. Amazing. We're raised to walk in newness of life. And look at what it testifies to, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. You know, uncircumcision now is a reality of needing spiritual rebirth. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul just gives you the weighty, glorious reality of the gospel at the very end as he shows you what baptism reveals and signifies, what circumcision means now, how it's not circumcision physically but internally on your heart. And he rolls out this glorious gospel that you've been made alive with Jesus, delivered from the curse of sin. And he shows it's been done in two ways, forgiveness of sin and canceling of our debt. Now, I want to make sure, sure you understand what Jesus is not saying, right, and understand what he's doing for you on the cross. You did not pay off your debt. But this is the grave error in evangelicalism. You've got to understand, you woke up and your mortgage was paid off, right? You didn't come home and pay off most of it, and then Jesus finished it off. It's this weird thing that, hey, I was doing really bad back here, and then I got kind of good, so now it's no issue anymore. Or, yeah, I was sleeping around getting high, and now I don't sleep around and get high anymore, so I kind of paid off some of the debt. No, you did none of it. You woke up, mortgage was clean, Jesus was dead, Jesus rose, blood was shed for you in your place. You have no debt owed anymore for your sin that stood against him with its legal demands it's great news right as Christians we love this we celebrate this we sing about this we shout about this we take Lord's Supper about this we get baptized for this because the legal demands that stood against us he forgave and he canceled the debt we walk out clean we walk out forgiven we walk out not with trails of this might still be hanging this might still be lingering this might still gnaw at my ankle no Jesus cut it all off so you could walk totally free with no enslavement to any sin that used to indwell you We've got Christ. You are in Christ. That's why your identity is solely swallowed up in that. That's why tribes, tongues, nations, we don't see that here. We see in Christ, not in Christ. Have Jesus, don't have Jesus. The Bible's gonna draw a line. And those are the areas that he shows our glory, and this is what you're seeing in baptism. Isn't that awesome? 
Isn't that awesome that that's what you're witnessing when you watch a baptism? This is a lot of stuff. We haven't even covered all that it is. But you're seeing all these different spaces here. And the last one I love, that end part, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's why baptism says, Jesus, you're my allegiance. That's why it's public. I love him. I want to follow him. I'm not perfect, but I'm made new. And I want to repent of sin. And I want to keep following him. And I want to keep making him Lord of my life. And here's what it does. It reminds you the demonic powers that used to lure you and entice you and tempt you to follow after every other god, every other false god, he stripped them naked and put them in a public shame. Said you got no authority over that man or woman. And all they can do is pester you. But they can't have your allegiance anymore. That great news, you're seeing that in baptism. So all of this is bound up in a glorious ordinance. So considerations for us before we take the Lord's Supper. One, have you been made new in Jesus? Is your identity in him or is your identity in everything outside of him? Do you believe you're a sinner deserving death that Jesus endured for you on your behalf so you could have everlasting life? Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. And then get baptized at the next baptism. If you're in this room and you know Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, where are you still falling prey to identity having allegiance over you when it doesn't? What things dictate joy? What things dictate value? What things dictate worth to you? When you leave these, these doors and leave this building, you know what falls on your heart, right? I don't. No one else does. And where does Jesus want to continue to find victory and declare allegiance in your heart and soul? Let's ask him for help there. God, thank you that baptism is something beautiful. Thank you that it is a portrayal that reveals the full defeat of the demonic, the full defeat of sin, the full defeat of identities that are false, that it reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection that you did on behalf and for sinners. God, thank you that you make us new. Thank you that you alone save. Thank you that you alone forgive sin. Thank you that you alone give newness of life. That's why we worship you. Father, would you encourage those who need to be encouraged? Would you comfort those who need to be comforted? Would you convict those who need to be convicted? And God, ultimately, would you lead us continually to the feet of the cross of Jesus Christ, where you hung and you died and were buried and continue to show us and remind us that the tomb is empty. God, that we have freedom in you. Fathers, we observe the table. Might we gladly rejoice in all the benefits we've received in the death of Jesus Christ, in the blood that was shed and the body that was broken for us in our place as our substitute. In Jesus' name, amen.